everyone. Um, I'm Jennifer Silva. Um, I will be talking today, today about the four-way meeting, and we also have with us here today Pete Jamison, who will be uh, discussing the pre-trial conference with you, as well as the memo. And we are very pleased to have Judge Ricky joining us today to give us a perspective um, as to the bench's view regarding the four-way meeting requirements and the pre-trial conference. Um, so I guess we will jump right in. Um, so I will start off with the four-way meeting, quite frankly, because the four-way meeting comes first. It is the requirement from the court um, to have this meeting before you come into the pretrial conference. Um, you will get um, your pretrial notice from the court in the mail. And on that notice, um, it outlines that at least one week before your pretrial, you will require to meet in person. The parties and any lawyers on the case must meet in person to talk about the case. The only exception in that notice is that if there is a domestic violence restraining order issued by one party against the other that is still in effect. Um, and it's also important to remember that we call it a four-way meeting because usually it is, uh, involves both parties and both attorneys. Um, but if the party is pro se and does not have an attorney, um, there is still that requirement to sit down, the three of you, to discuss the case. Um, and this is a requirement for a few reasons. There are a few, there's a, you know, a few purposes to this uh, meeting, right? Um, the first and foremost is that it's only to resolve your case. You sit down, you discuss all the issues with a goal of resolving the case and using your chapter to get parties divorced. Um, if that's not possible, you at least are able to narrow the issues. So when you go into the judge, you can have a very pointed discussion as to what the contested issues are, um, and, and you can have uh, more feedback from the judge on the issues you really need to hear from the judge on. <clears throat> and also another um, purpose of the four-way is so you have a joint trial plan. If you're not able to settle the case, you're, um, you and your the opposing counsel could be on the same page as to how many days of trial you're actually needing, what issues are being tried, what the witnesses are. So when you go before the judge at the pretrial, it is clear to the judge you've actually sat down with your um, sister or brother counsel to discuss the case. And, you know, one party's not saying, one counsel's not saying you need, you know, four days of trial with the other counsel saying we need a half day because we've resolved everything. You really want to show the judge that you've tried to resolve this case. Um, for scheduling purposes, you know, it's my personal preference. I say the sooner the better. Um, you know, I, I have my office reach out to the other side, um, you know, very shortly after receiving that pretrial notice in the mail to start coordinating calendars. Because if there are four parties involved in this meeting, coordinating four calendars is not um, always an easy task. Um, and I, I even, you know, the, the one week um, deadline is, I see, see it as the last possible minute because, you know, the goal is to resolve the case, right? So if you wait to the last, you know, a week before your pretrial, that doesn't give you a lot of time to hopefully after the meeting, draft an agreement, finalize agreement, and get it signed before the pretrial. So, you know, my thought is, you know, why drive yourself crazy? Give yourself a little more time to, you know, draft the agreement, have the parties have ample time to review the agreement before you go into the pretrial. Um, <clears throat> you know, with that being said, <laughs> you know, you want it as soon as possible, but also not too early. Every case is a little different. So, you know, you want the parties and the attorneys to have sufficient information coming into this meeting so they can have productive discover, um, uh, settlement discussions. 
um, if there is um, discovery outstanding, if appraisals have not been done yet, um, if there is a GAL report in the case that the it's not either been submitted to the court or the parties and counsel have not reviewed yet. You know, those outstanding um, bits of information are very important and could, you know, detract from productive, productive discussions. So when I'm scheduling my full ray meeting, I'm thinking of, I want it with enough time before the pretrial to give us time to prep the case for the pretrial, but not too soon that discovery is not completed. Um, you know, because that, again, we're talking settlement here. So without a home being appraised, you know, it's very difficult to talk global resolution. So it's kind of a balancing act as to when you're scheduling this. Um, now, with respect to the meeting itself, um, one thing I try to remember is, you know, us as attorneys, we do this all the, you know, all the time. We are, you know, thinking very methodically about, you know, the issues in the case, how we resolve these certain issues. But you, I think we have to remember to be sensitive to, about our clients participating in this meeting. You know, some clients are fine. They talk all the time with their, you know, spouse about settlement and they have no problem sitting in a room with, you know, the other person um, in, in this uh, manner. Some clients I've had have had absolutely no communication with their, you know, spouse in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always think how this can be a very painful experience for them to be sitting in a room with two attorneys talking about the dissolution of their marriage. So I think, you know, be sensitive to that. I always let my clients know that, you know, anytime they want to speak with me privately, you know, they can pull me out of the, out of the room. Um, you know, I always think it's good to, when we're thinking about settings, you know, which attorney's office we're going to have the meeting at, you know, if one, one of the attorneys has, you know, two conference rooms available, I always think that's a great choice for setting because then, you know, the parties, we can kind of do breakouts, you know, you can sit in a comfortable setting with your client and speak with them, then all come together to, you know, start discussions. Um, and I, on the flip side, I always want to remind my client that this is also not a setting where we're litigating your case, right? You're not going to, um, you know, be really convincing their spouse of much. We're trying to see where we have common ground, where we can, um, you know, um, find avenues to re resolution, um, you know, personal attacks, derogatory language, you know, it's, it's really not helpful or productive. And there have been some instances where, um, you know, the, uh, I'll say the other party in the case, um, you know, has, has been very volatile in the sessions to the point of, you know, I, I remind the other attorney that if I feel like my client's being attacked, you know, I think we've stopped personal, you know, productive discussions and I'll, I'll end the meeting. You know, this is not some, you know, an exercise where your client has to be badgered for, you know, two hours here. Um, <clears throat> so I, I like to remind my client of that before we even start the meeting. Um, now, that being said, every case, you know, the way I frame, I, I like to prepare um, on kind of an outline of the issues before the meeting. And, you know, my personal preference is to start off on a positive note. I like to start off with issues that I think, or I know at this juncture of the case, we agree upon. You know, for instance, if, jo if joint legal custody has never been an issue in this case, I almost like to start there, remind the parties that, okay, look, we have an agreement on joint legal custody. You know, it's almost like you're checking off boxes. And I find that that almost gives the parties momentum to, you know, keep checking off those boxes and keep being reasonable because, you know, they're, they're seeing um, 
issues being resolved in real time. I usually leave the more difficult issues or the inflammatory issues towards the end of the meeting for a few, re you know, mainly because those often, they have the potential to derail negotiations, right? So if we start off with those issues that could really um, preclude us from, you know, checking off some of the other more um, amicable issues in your case. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, I look like, you know, I think that, again, every case is different. I will, you know, I've had four ways where we sit there for, you know, four hours in a, in a room because we're really making progress. We're, we're, you know, we're checking off those boxes and having really productive conversations. And, you know, I, for scheduling purposes, I usually block off a whole day. You know, I don't like to, you know, some kind of times, you know, other attorneys or my party has to go back to, you know, pick up the kids or something like that. And that's fine. But I, you know, I'm always of the mind, you know, let's stay as long as we can, as long as we're being productive. Um, but there are instances where I find that it becomes clear that discussions no longer are productive. We've, we're kind of, you know, going in circles. Clients are clearly getting agitated. Um, and that's fine. I, I remind, the, I like to remind the parties that, you know, we've made a lot of progress, you know, look at all these issues we have resolved. And now we've narrowed them down to, you know, two or three contested issues that we can bring to the judge at our pretrial conference. And that's fine. So I like to kind of, and even if we don't come to a resolution in the case, I like to almost end on a positive note. Um, so the parties feel like that exercise, you know, a lot of parties want to settle the case at the pretrial, at the, at the four-way meeting. Um, so it could be a little deflating if, if they don't, but I like to remind them that, you know, look, we've settled, you know, 80% of your issues. We did a great job here, and now we're going to go before the judge and get some insight, and hopefully that bridges the gap on the remaining issues. Um, so I think, you know, every case is a little different. I think it's important to um, know your client, um, know their triggers, know, you know, know whether this is going to be an emotional event for them, have tissues available. I always have plenty of tissues in my conference room because, you know, this, some, some clients are totally fine. Some, some, this is a very emotional um, aspect of their case. Um, and I think it's important for us to remember that. Um, now, I don't know, Judge Ricky, do you have any thoughts as to uh, four-way meetings, what you'd like to see for four-way meetings and what yes. bothered you? <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank the participants for being with us today. We hear there's about 30 of you out there, and we're thrilled. And I want you to know that I crashed this. I was not on the panel, but I <laughs> called Pete and Jen and asked if I could because I think it is so important, the pretrial and the four-way meeting. And I also was on a Zoom with judges, um, sitting judges, five sitting judges over the weekend, told them I was going to be on the panel, and they gave me their thoughts on how pre-trials in four ways could be most effective and helpful. So I'm gonna have the benefit of sharing that with you. So thanks uh, for inviting me, haha, -ha, and allowing me to barge in. Um, I think hopefully you will have a very professional and respectful relationship with opposing counsel. We all know that there are some that attorneys that are more difficult to work or feel that they have to posture in front of their client and the four-way may be a good time for them to show that off. But I think that if both sides exchange letters when you are setting up the, the four-way meeting, that'd really be helpful. My client has to pick up the kids at three. There's nothing worse than it being 2.30 and you're really on a roll 
and oh, I've got to go pick up the kids. And then somebody says, well, you should have arranged to have the kids picked up or whatever it is. So anything you can lay out in writing and the reason that I suggest it be in writing is because each of you have to share whatever correspondence you get from the other side with your clients. So they'll know that you're all trying your best to be your best professional selves and be most prepared. And I think the four-way meeting as the judges on my Zoom the other morning said, please remind the attorneys, this is a mandatory four-way. It is not done at the courthouse 15 minutes before. It is so important. This is, you know, you really don't hear about it much in the courtroom. You only did have your four-way meeting. One says, yeah, but they walked out after four minutes. The other says, we didn't do it until yesterday at five o'clock by telephone. We never were in person. And the judge just has to keep going because you're at the pretrial hearing at that point. But it is such an important meeting. And I think that the judges are expect, I know that judges expect that you have had the four-way meeting in good faith. You don't have to settle everything. You possibly can't settle everything, but you have to have it in good faith. And if someone has not completed discovery and someone has not exchanged current financial statements before the four-way, and if someone has not lined up the exhibits that they're going to be presenting so that you know there really is evidence of something, for example, the real estate appraisal, the values of the, of the investment accounts, whatever, then you're asking people to waive, you're asking the other side to waive something that they don't even know. So it can't be an effective four-way. So it is imperative that counsel before the four-way exchange, five days before, we're gonna exchange financial statements, we're going to exchange all potential exhibits, we're going to exchange. So everybody knows when they go into that four-way, A, you're serious, and you've sat down with your client, and you and your client have had a conversation, not just walked into the meeting, and 15 minutes before you go to Attorney Jamison's office that you have this meeting with your own client. Really need to say to your client that let's prioritize because you can't get everything. This is a settlement meeting. You're not going to get everything. So let's prioritize what's most important to you today. What do we wanna walk away with from that four-way meeting? Whatever you can stipulate to with the other side, at the four-way meeting, whatever counsel can stipulate to and bring into the judge, either a stipulation of facts, but hopefully a stipulation of the 10 things you've checked off and the four you haven't, the court is so appreciative. A, it shows that you really wanna settle and you put the time in, which is most important for the court to know that you tried, you were ready, you did it in good faith. And secondly, you're not that far apart usually if you sit down and talk about issues and bring proposed judgments to the four-way. It doesn't have to be a proposed judgment formal, but if you agree five days before to say, mom wants this for summer vacation, mom wants this for holidays, dad wants, you can see in those five days or seven days before you have the four-way that you're not that far apart instead of wasting time at the four-way. But I would schedule it to be the whole day, just like Jen said, because they need to know they're there to work and they're there to work really hard being the parties. Now, I did not think about, but what Jen said is so important, often parties have not been in a room together since separation. They've not had motions. Many people haven't had motions. Many times counsel have just done stipulations for temporary orders and mail them into the court. There may be temporary orders, but they could be by stipulation or by letter agreement. So it may be the very first time they've sat. It also may be the very first time they've met opposing counsel. 
and they're trying to read Jen and Pete, presuming that you're counsel, opposite counsel on this case. So give them a little time to build up that trust. And because that's what settlement is about, is connecting, right? You have, they have to feel heard. They just have to feel that they are heard in what they want, even though you've told them a thousand times that that evidence is never going to come in because it's a spousal disqualification. They just need to be heard. And this is the time at the four-way meeting for them to be heard. Um, so you have to warn your client or suggest to your client that the other side may be sort of more boastful, may say, I've been in front of this judge 15 times on pretrials, and I always know what this judge wants to do. You never know. Every case is different, right? We all know when the evidence goes in that no, you know, judges will give parameters maybe at a pretrial hearing, but they don't know exactly how everything is going. So someone boasting, just explain to your client if you have an attorney on the other side that may be that type, that it's just boasting and that the judge will listen to both sides. Um, I think it's very important to communicate with your client, though, the week, at least a week before to plan the four-way meeting. We think it's incredibly important to do that because the more you can accomplish, the less time in the courtroom, the less time having to put it into a, a pretrial memorandum and go to a pretrial hearing. Judge, can um, I jump in there one, one issue right there? Please. I, I, I love the boastful comment because I, I also find that I can learn more at, at a four-way for a case that's definitely going on to a pretrial by just not talking and just listening. Mm -hmm. if, if there's a vacuum in the room of people talking and then, and then the other side keeps on like, you know, sending out information that I'm picking up on, I can use that if this case is going to a pretrial. So it's really good to sit there and just take it all in. Even if the other side is acting incredibly, uh, you know, just not, not uh, cooperative, they may give you some information you can use. Uh, in such a way to help your case out. And sometimes I find that's the first time they bring up certain issues too, especially if it's not a highly litigated case, all of a sudden they're talking about dissipation of assets and you're, you're like, what did that? <laughs> you never brought that up before, but it is, it's a great, almost like a fact finding tool. Just let them talk and, and you'll, and then it also helps you to frame your pretrial memo that, you know, people talk about because now you know, you know, in my example, they're talking about dissipation of assets. Well, you can guess they're probably going to bring that up at the pretrial. They wouldn't have brought mm -hmm. it up. So now you can kind of tailor your pretrial memo to refute their allegations, you know, in your pretrial. So a memo. So it's, it's a good exercise for sure. Sometimes the parties need to get out that conduct criteria, the conduct factors, and just say it, even though you've explained that the court is not going to give much weight to that or whatever. They've got, to, they've got to get it out. And the four-way, not the pretrial hearing, is the place to get it out. It should not be in the pretrial memo. It's not necessary that it be at the pretrial hearing. So let them get it out and say about how much they spent on the boyfriend or girlfriend of marital assets and just say it and put a period at the end of it so that they feel heard. Because the purpose of the four-way is for them to have their time to, like Pete said, very important to hear where the other side's coming from very, very important, just let them go. But also for them to just say things that may not matter in a trial or at a pretrial hearing, but they just need to get it because that's what they hear every night in their brain when they go to bed. And that's what's bothering them. And we've got to acknowledge that. Okay, that's it for my pretrial, for my four-way. Great job, Jen, thank you. 
All right, now Pete will chat with us about the actual pretrial conference and the pretrial memorandum. Yeah, happy to do so. So when I when I think about the pretrial, I mean, there's so many things that you have to do, and there's so many, you know, people, the memo and the financial statement and the, you know everything you got to walk in with. But I I want to start a little bit simpler and just talk about what's the point of the pretrial and what are the goals. And I think if you start even more simpler is just how the probate and family court works. And what's interesting about our court as opposed to all the other courts that, that we can come in contact with, is that for the most part, you get one judge. You are assigned a single judge, unless that judge moves around, but doesn't happen all the time. And that judge, with, 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 there's nothing you can do about it for the most part, is going to be the person that makes the decision, you know, unless there's a conflict or something like that, but it's going to be that judge. And as we all know, a lot of the issues we deal with in family law are discretionary. They come down to the judge's uh, positions. And I, I know that I've heard this many times from uh, any number of chief justices sitting is that if you save the Alimony Reform Act, I know when that came out, you could have taken a poll of the 60 or so judges or 50 judges that we have sitting in the probate and family court about one provision in that act, and you would have gotten 50 or 60 different answers. You know, it's just that critical how um, discretionary these issues are. So, in a lot of cases, it comes down to, are you going to hear this? Well, let's hear from the judge. Um, you know, party A thinks that, you know, they're entitled to this. Party B thinks they're entitled to this. And the judge may say, well, party B is right or party A is right. Or maybe in a lot of cases, I'm going to come down in the middle somewhere. And so I refer the, the, the pretrial conferences, the great backstop, because, you know, you're going to have the chance to, to pitch your case. And the good part about a pretrial is that, you know, this is nothing against the court, but your time in front of a judge leading up to a pretrial is probably at a motion session or a procedural move of some kind. Those are very small windows. You're not going to get a judge wading into the major facts and get into the weeds. I mean, I mean, get that at the pretrial conference, but at least, you know, at a motion session, you're, you're just doing a flyby. The pretrial conference is a chance for the judge to really get an understanding of, of the case, you know, and get really get a little bit further down. And that's just an opportunity you don't have at, at, a, um, at a motion session. Um, so that's what I like very much about a pretrial conference is that you can have some time with the judge where the judge will look at what you put before them, uh, specifically in the form of a pretrial memo, which we'll go over and a proposed judgment, which we'll go over. And just like Jen mentioned, the, the purpose of which is to narrow the issues. I mean, really, I guess the overall purpose is to move your case forward. But really, you know, I break down what the goals of a pretrial conference are, um, is one, get feedback, because this is the judge that's going to be ruling on your case if you go to a trial, which hopefully you avoid. Um, and sometimes what I notice is that, you know, if you have an attorney on your side who maybe doesn't know the law as well as you do, or hasn't done this for a while, sometimes you just need the judge to say, or maybe it's even their part, their, their client, you need the judge to be the voice of authority to say, look, this is the way it's going to be. You know, you can, you can spin your wheels and do this for a lot longer, or you can just listen to what I'm going to tell you right now at the pretrial. And you know, this is the way it very well be. And I'll try to avoid war stories, but I had a case um, where it came down to a, a, a family heirloom. It was a diamond that uh, uh, was at a dispute that was smuggled out of uh, Nazi Germany by my client. In my mind, that was a no-brainer. My client was going to retain that diamond. Uh, but the other attorney was not very well-versed in family law, didn't know uh, a lot of the things that, that you know, good practitioners know. And we actually had to go in front of the judge, and the judge had to set the record straight and say, this is what's going to happen. Another one of the things that I, that I think is great about a pretrial is it'll narrow the issues. I mean, off the top of my head, and I tell this to clients when I first meet with them, to get from point A to point B with a settlement, there's about 70 issues you got to figure out. 
most of which is done by matter of law, you know, health insurance, for instance, or, and some things are, are figured out just because of practice, like life insurance. If there's going to be a support order, there's going to be a life insurance uh, order in place. Um, so it doesn't help anyone that, you, you know, you have 10 unresolved issues, but sometimes it just happens at a pretrial conference. And so I, I'm, I'm happy to go into a pretrial conference where I know that, you know, if the other side's pleading, you know, a bunch of issues, I'm hopeful that the judge will at least take some off the table if we haven't been able to resolve those things. Um, and then I think the other thing is a little bit, I guess, I guess not as, not as un, unspoken or not as said as much, which is that it, you're helping build your case. If, for instance, because the pretrial is not the end of your case if you don't resolve everything. Obviously, the end of your case is a trial. But if you go to a pretrial and don't resolve anything, the judge is, I mean, may put you on for a trial, but it's all likely that they'll put you on for a status conference. And what, I, what my belief is that they'll want to know that you've made progress based upon the feedback that they've had at a pretrial conference. So if you go to a pretrial conference and you say, you know, here's my pitch on alimony, here's my pitch on, on the asset division, the judge says, well, here's what I think should occur. And you still haven't resolved the case. And then you go to a status conference Well, you can report back to the court and say, judge, you know, we took your direction and your feedback to heart and we tried to build off of that. And as you can see, my, my brother and my sister counsel, they're still entrenched on their position. There is no movement here. And you're building their case up that if you do have to go to trial, the judge, I think, and, and Judge Ricky, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I always believe that the judge's most valuable commodity is time, that they don't want to waste their time on a case that could settle. So if you are in front of a judge for the third or whatever number, maybe fourth time on a case that should settle, they're going to get very upset. At least, at least that's my take on it. I think they're not going to be happy that you're not making the progress that you should be making. And so the more cases, the occasions, if you're not selling the case to, to tell that to the judge, that look, we're, we're trying to work on this feedback here. You're not going anywhere. Well, I think that it can ultimately benefit your case. Um, so I'm a big fan in terms of preparation. I'm a huge fan of preparation. I, th I think a good pre-trial is 98% prep and then 2% in front of a judge. Um, and so I start every time with the pre-trial order. It is a form that the court will issue, but I don't think you can just bank on the fact and say, oh, well, if, if that's a form from Judge A, it's going to be the same form for Judge B. That's not the case. Some judges have very, very specific pre-trial orders. Um, and some judges are very, very um, concrete about discovery before pretrials or getting your memo in before the uh, pretrial conference. What I always say is you can never go wrong by reviewing the order and looking over that order, making sure you're in compliance with it. Because if you go to court and you witness a lot of um, you know, pro se litigants or even people that are, that are even represented by attorneys that, that may not uh, be as acquainted with the rules as we all are, um, you start at a disadvantage if you don't follow that order. And it's as simple as can be. Just look at the order and just tailor everything to that. You cannot go wrong by doing it that way. Um, another thing that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a critical fan of is getting discovery done before the pretrial. I, I, I think if you were to take a poll of the judges sitting in the probate and family court, I I, no one's ever uniform, but I would say 95% of them want discovery completely done before you get to a pretrial. Maybe not depositions. Maybe you can carve that out and say you do that before trial. But I think your appraisals, I think your requests for documents, I think your interrogatories, I think all of that needs to be set before you get to a pretrial. There's some exceptions, um, but I think it's very, very clear there. And in fact, and I actually just wrote an opposition uh, this uh, yesterday. Um, having to do with reopening discovery. If you look at the um, most of the pretrial orders, they have a mention in there where you have to describe whether discovery is completed or not. Um, and we'll talk about uh, uh, 
chapter 231, section 87, and why I think that's an important uh, statute to look at. But you need to address whether discovery is completed or not. And a lot of judges are going to say, look, if your discovery is not done, I don't, I'm not going to hear you because there are facts out there that I need or that you need in order to really, really uh, uh, pursue this case. And keep in mind that this is a pre-trial. According to the order, it is entirely theoretical and possible that a judge could order that case to go to trial that day. I have seen it a few times, and it's not very often. Where I've seen it is where, say, for instance, um, the other side hasn't shown up. I mean, if I'm there with my client and we could get this case over today and, and uh, a ruling that may be incredibly beneficial to my client, I'm going to press for that. And if I don't have all the information at hand, I might not be able to get that from my client. So it's really, I, I always err on the side of getting discovery done before I go into, into court on a pretrial conference. So um, now that we talk about the, the sort of the, the you know, top of the order type of stuff. I put together a little bit of, of a, of a uh, how can I say it, of, of a checklist. And I'll show that to you, to you everyone right now. And I, it came out in the, in the handouts. So if you didn't get it, you know, we can certainly email it to you. Um, so I just put together a quick checklist and use this as you see fit. Also, it's not set in stone, but do whatever you, know, you want to do with this. Um, what I always do, this is kind of a little bit gamesmanship. I always bring um, one original for the court, which is what you're supposed to do. I bring a bunch of copies for me. Um, that I have on hand, I have to give out to counsel of whatever I'm going to be filing. Whatever you're going to give to the court, obviously you're going to give to your opposing counsel and you're going to keep for your file as well so that your client can get one. So that's why I have one for the court, one for me, one for my client, and one for opposing counsel. Um, no matter what, if you're dealing with a divorce case, you're going to have to file a financial statement. Even if finances aren't really an issue, they're always an issue. Um, so I've linked to the short form and the long form here. Short form for income, gross incomes less than 75,000, a long form for incomes uh, more than 75,000. One little note is that if you're using a long form, you have to have it notarized. I, I love the implication of that because notary means extra protections, which means that people that make more money are more inclined to lie. I don't know why that is like that, but that is one of the stranger rules I know of. Um, the the pre-trial memo, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then the child support guidelines, if applicable, obviously, if you're dealing with um, emancipated children or children or no children of the marriage, you don't have to worry about it. But there's the, the guidelines and you're going to want to fill that out and bring that in. Um, your short form, I'm sorry, your, your financial statements on pink uh, and your guidelines on uh, blue. That's, the, that's how the court separates those out from the main file. Um, big one is the proposed judgment. Um, these are becoming more and more applicable and more and more required. I just think it's such, even if it's not required by a judge, you totally do it because one, it'll save you time. Two, it's a great way to get a leg up and have the judge see in writing, here's what I want, you know? Um, a lot of courts require this. It's a DOR services form. Um, you can just pick it up when you get to court and fill out as the next one, the self-addressed stamp envelope, okay? Um, because it's, it's most, I mean, it, it's, it's strange how, how it's required sometimes. I just know it's a time killer. So if you could go there and get it done beforehand, it'll save you a lot of time waiting in line. Um, I'm a big fan of chalks, a huge fan of chalks. Um, for example, an asset division chart. You know, these are things where you can list out sort of like a balance sheet, all of the assets that are included and liabilities, because it's kind of hard, I think, for us to sort of think about assets sort of in the theoretical I love having an asset division chart. I think the judges do too, where it says like, here's, here's the cash accounts. Here's the qualified accounts. Here's the liabilities. And here's like, you know, the bits and baubles. Let's look at this. Um, very helpful. Um, 
we're now entering a world um, with, uh, well, been entering the world where alimony is no longer tax deductible. So it's a new world. Uh, and we're all talking about using, you know, accountants to help us, you know, square it up. There's pending legislation, which may or may not get passed anytime soon. Um, but tax analyses are now becoming more important than they ever were. So I always like to have one just in case it becomes an issue. Um, I like timelines. If there's a question about what happened, like, for instance, if there's a restraining order involved or, you know, a dissipation of assets. Um, and I think the judges, you know, do appreciate that as well, because again, you're only given so much time in front of the judges. You want to present, present the information as succinctly as possible. Um, now, this is, these are items that I don't necessarily think that you may be submitting, but it's good to have them handy. Um, is I always like to have my pleadings binder, um, just to have it at the ready. That way you can thumb through um, and get to a pleading just super fast if there's a question. Um, it comes up all the time. When did discovery end? Okay, well, hang on, judge. I got it's pleading binder number number you know twelve, whatever it may be. Um, always like to have at, at on loose leaf and multiple copies of prior orders and stipulations because those could very much impact what you're going to do at a pretrial. Prior financial statements. Um, if you're dealing with a modification or a contempt, um, then definitely the prior uh, separation agreement, um, judgment, discovery orders, a pretrial order, the pretrial order itself. And then I'm a really big fan of having the other side's materials as well on hand so that you can use that as best you can. Um, big fan of having just one copy, and I'll tell you why, because I can't tell you how many times I've been to a court where the other side has forgotten their own materials. And if it's your copy, and say you, and I wrote there, mark up, and if you've written on there, like, you know, like off to the side of the paragraph, that's a complete lie, or that's nonsense. There's no, there's no attorney in the world that's going to say, hey, can I, can I submit yours? No way. Uh -uh, uh -uh. That's mine. And if you want to submit, submit mine with all the notes on it that says that this is complete nonsense, sure, be my guest. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, that's what I always just try to have there. And I also I just, I always have an argument. I never wing it when I go to court. Even if I just do bullet points, I'm always a big fan of having just like, this is a starting point. Make sure you hit on this. Um, judges always like, I think, always like to have just like a, a good amount of facts and a, and a basic information of the pedigree that you want to put out there. Length of the marriage, kids, ages, um, what each party did, who did what, and, and that kind of thing in terms of who was, you know, contributor, who did, what were their roles, things like that. Um, so that's just a simple checklist. You know, use it, you know, refine it, do as you see fit. Um, and then I put um, together, this is just my standard pre-trial memo with uh, redacted. Um, and I am a big fan, and I'll defer to Judge Ricky on this one. Um, although I didn't get any complaints from Judge Ricky when I practiced in front of her, when she was still on the bench with my, my version of a pretrial memo. I think you only have so much time in front of a judge at a pretrial conference. You, you have, I, I don't usually see one go on for more than 30 minutes at the most, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. So why not give the judge everything that judge will need to hopefully go in your favor? And that's why I always do this thing, which is a case, case synopsis right at the beginning. I, so I front load the facts. I say, judge, boom. You don't have to hear about the conduct. That's 10 pages later. You don't want to know about the conduct. Here's what we're dealing with. Here are our issues. Our issues are alimony and how to divide a pension. And, the, and the, the, you know, here's a business valuation. And here's my argument. Take it. It's right there. You know what I'm doing. Um, I've... It's, it's, it's a question as to, you know, some judges like the form and like it, like it looking a certain way, but some judges do want this information right at the front. Um, and so that's what I try to do. It's all a question of, you know, reading your audience. 
But the, you know, these are things that I think is required in every pre-trial memo. So I'll just briefly go through this. You're gonna wanna do a brief procedural history how we got to this point. I always wanna make mention that there is stipulations or temporary orders and that there is a, uh, if there is a restraining order, clearly put that in there because that affects so many issues in the case. Uh, the uncontested facts, this is a critical thing where, where you can narrow the issues and try to just you know, put out there and use this later, even at a, um, at a trial, if you do go to a trial about what cannot be disputed. Um, the contested issues of facts. I, I, I just put that out there. I don't think anyone's going to, it's important, but, but uh, you know, you're sort of talking about what the problems are. I think that can come out later in the, uh, or before in the synopsis. Um, the contested issues law also important just to note, like, you know, this is what we're dealing with, but here are the, the, the statutes to look to. I mean, the judges are going to know if you're disputing um, asset division, they're going to look to 208 section 34. But maybe if you're talking about, you know, uh, a restraining order in the midst of a custody battle, it might be helpful to point to the judge to the, the relevant section in 208 where they talk about, you know, for instance, if there's an ongoing pattern of abuse that directly affects legal custody. So if there's sort of a, a statute you can point to, I think that isn't 20834, one of the, the, the tent pole statutes, be sure to make it, make it known. Um, clearly, I'm a, the status of discovery, definitely put that in there because the judge is going to want to see that, I think. Um, and your schedule of exhibits is really important as well. This is if you go to trial, you want to identify what you're going to be putting out there to the court and what, what you're going to be offering as exhibits. Um, I'm always more inclusive. Um, I want to add more because I don't want to ask about it later. If you're going to amend this, theoretically, you may have to ask the judge for permission to change up this exhibit list. So I always put, you know, in there, I said credit card statements. I may not use all the credit card statements, but I want to say I'm going to use the credit card statements. Um, clearly you want to list all your witnesses because you may be precluded from naming them at trial. I wouldn't go overboard. I wouldn't name 30 witnesses. Um, I, I would try to keep it down to what is reasonably necessary for your case. Uh, keeping in mind that you want to also include uh, what's, you don't want to be asking for permission later on. You want to have them in here. List of expert witnesses, clear cut. You need these experts in there. Again, and also keep in mind expert interrogatories. There's a lot of requirements to meet if you're going to admit an expert. In, in Massachusetts probate and family court. Um, and also, you know, you may have discovery obligations in that regard, but I do believe even if there's no expert interrogatories, even if Dalbert didn't apply, I still think you have to put this into a pretrial memo if you're gonna have any shot of getting an expert in. Uh, if, even if everyone knows about the expert, I still think you gotta list this um, because the court's gonna want this uh, as, as noticed. Everybody. Um, you're going to have to, you know, obviously state that you're going to have a financial statement. We talked about that. And you're going to need to give the judge a little bit of an estimate for trial time. Don't get too crazy and say we're going to need 10, 10 days. I don't think you're going to get it. Um, you know, tailor it to what you need and think about the witnesses they're going to be called to testify. If you're going to have like a business valuation expert, that's an all day thing uh, for the most part. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit less than maybe like four hours, but it's, it's going to be necessary. Um, so keep that in mind and, and uh, you know, don't oversell, don't undersell basically. And then we get down to what I think is required in all pretrial memos, which is a discussion and, a, and an offer of proof on the section 34 factors, which are asset division, as well as the factors between 48 and 55, which are alimony. And I kind of put these together because I think that a lot of the section 34 factors cover the alimony factors. And so what I do is I just list them all out. You know, I don't think you need to write a treatise on the conduct of the parties. I think you're going to turn off the judges as well, uh, because if you, if, you, if you take a poll, you go into, into Suffolk Probate and Family Court and you say, hey guys, uh, show of hands, who doesn't like something that their ex-spouse did? 
and you are going to have a courthouse full of empty pockets. It is just everyone, as, as Jen mentioned, as Judge Ricky mentioned, you're going to have a lot of people with an ax to grind. And believe it or not, no one's seen it all, but I think the judges have seen a lot. So you don't need to do much in the way of conduct, but I do believe it's important to touch on just to you get required to touch on it. I think there are cases where conduct does come out clearly um, in uh, domestic violence situations. I think those need to be addressed because they could tie into uh, uh, custody issues, but I think also, you know, dissipation of assets, but I don't think you need to go overboard. I, th I think you could do a lot of damage by getting too much on the offensive. Um, and then you just run through all these things. I don't, I, I've never seen anyone really, really provide novels with regards to these, these factors, but it's important to point out. You don't need to win on everyone either. You know, there's, there, there still is the aspect of a family where dad was the, you know, or mom was the primary income earner and the other parent was the stay-at-home parent. I think you get further by just putting that out there and saying, look, you know, when we talk about contribution in value, well, yeah, this, the income earner did that. But they were able to do that because the parent was mending the home, was there to take care of the kids, take care of the house. And it was a partnership. That's how it sort of built up. I don't think you're going to win every battle on, on, on a Section 34 discussion. Um, and then last but not least is your representation of good faith negotiation. Like, like Jen and like Judge Richie mentioned, Ricky mentioned, you're going to want to tell the judge, we at least talked. You need to do that. Um, the last thing that you need that you want to be doing is doing a, a four-way at the courthouse. It's just it's just a bad idea. Uh, won't won't uh, won't help you out. Uh, one thing that I, I really want to bring up is um, statute, which is a general laws chapter two thirty one section eighty seven. Uh, big fan of citing to that uh, and keeping that in mind because technically any pleading that you submit uh, on behalf of your client um, is binding. Now the, the statute says in any civil action pleadings, in a civil action, pleadings should not be evidence on the trial, but the allegations therein shall bind the party making them. Now, this is, this is sort of like, you know, one day this is going to pay off in dividends for me. I know it's going to be a huge win, but, but it, it, you know, it's really important when you could go to trial and say, look, you said all these things in your pretrial memo and you're, now you're changing your story. Now you're doing, operating a little differently or, you know, this was in your proposed judgment. Now you, you're shifting the ground a little bit here. It also could be very helpful, you know, and we don't plan on the next action before we get done with the first one, but it could be very helpful as you get into a modification because a lot of times modifications are based upon, an, well, all the time they're based upon what is an unforeseen material and substantial change in circumstances. Well, if they knew about it in their pretrial memo, can't really be unforeseen. So it's good things to, to sort of think about. Um, and last but not least, I just put together a um, proposed judgment. Um, again, not... I think most of the judges would probably say they want it. I don't know if it's always required in every, I don't see in every order, but I've never heard a judge tell me, don't file that, or I don't want that. You're giving me too much paperwork. I think the judges would very much like this. Um, at the very least, what you're doing is you're putting pen to paper and saying, judge, look, here's what I'm looking for. And maybe if you're lucky, and that doesn't happen all that often, but if you don't have a party showing up, it's just as easy to have the judge sign off on this. And say, here we go. I, 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 Jen Silva gave me everything I needed. What am I going to do? You know, it's right here. I don't have to do any work. Boy, my life is easy. And so what I do is I just do a front page with my signature on it, with the certificate of service. And that way, theoretically, the judge can just rip it off and then get right into the judgment. And that's what I have down here. I mean, I, I, I spend the time to go through the judgment. I don't just do, you know, the caption and then, you know, custody, dad or, you know, legal custody joint. No, I, I, you take the time on this because it'll pay off in dividends. And at the very least, 
what you can do if you, you know, because I went in there and I did the whole parenting plan. I did, you know, uh, I do the vacation weeks. It will save you time if you're moving towards a separation agreement uh, because you can just cut and paste and put that in there and modify as necessary. Or if you're going to trial, I guarantee you, you're going to need to do this anyways. Mm -hmm. So there, it's at the ready. And if you can get a judge to thank you for doing it, take that opportunity. Um, so that's, that's what I have prepared. And that's, that's the angle. Now, when you go to court on a pretrial conference, there's lots of different approaches uh, with, depending upon the court you go to, what you're going to want to do is find out what courtroom you're in. You're going to want to get there as early as you can, because the earlier you get there, the sooner you're out. Um, you're going to want to um, check in with the clerk, probably fill out a self-addressed envelope, um, provide all of your materials to the clerk at that time. If you haven't filed it beforehand, this is also assuming that we get back into a courthouse anytime soon, guys. So just for that. Um, but, you know, we want to make sure that all your materials are in there. Check with the clerk. Did you get this? Did you get that? Um, be as nice as you can to the clerks. Uh, there's an old saying, it is so true. The judge can hurt you. The clerks can kill you. Okay. These, these clerks are wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I love them to death. They have a tough job. So a little bit of niceness and a thank you and a, hey, you know, how's everything going? Blah, blah, blah. It goes a long way, a very long way. Don't, I would, the one thing I would say is never, ever be rude to a clerk. That's just, it's, it's, it's suicide. It's a hard job. It's an incredibly yep. hard job to be a clerk. Yep, yep. Um, and then, you know, when it's, you're going to be, you know, sort of, I just tell my clients, it's a hurry up and wait type of day. Once you're all in, you're going to be, you know, waiting around for a little bit. The judge is going to call you up, hopefully. And then it's anything goes. It depends on that judge. Uh, I know we were talking about uh, Judge Kaplan earlier uh, when we were offline. I, I never prepared, I prepared an argument, but I never got to make it with Judge Kaplan. She read it. <laughs> just said, here's what I'm going to do, guys. I don't want to hear from either of you. Um, judge Monks, on the other hand, another excellent judge, she can give it the time to really plead your case. And she'll take it in and then she'll, she'll give you some thoughts. So a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of homework and asking around, how does this judge do that? How does that judge do this? It could go a long way. So, um, so that's what, what I've got here. Great. Great. Jen, do you want to add in anything on the pretrial memo or the hearing before I... No, I mean, it's funny. I, Pete, I have a very similar style to you with the memos. I think that that synopsis and the issues up front is it's worth its weight in gold because I find that, you know, the rest of the stuff is important and the judge will read that. But I think putting it right to the judge in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, these are our issues. This is what I really need to have you speak on. They're reading the rest of your memo with an eye towards those issues, right? So I think that is um, that's the way I do it as well. I think it's very important, and I totally agree. Nothing um, is more frustrating to me than trying to schedule it four way and them saying, you know, let's meet, <clears throat> you know, in the rotunda at Suffolk at you know eight fifteen. <laughs> like, what are uh, we going to accomplish there? So. Um, you know, I think it's pretrial conferences, I always say is other than a trial, obviously, it's it's the most important hearing in your case. I mean, it, it's not something to be taken lightly. And I can see why judges would get frustrated when especially when there are two attorneys on a case when you show up without appraisals without, you know, um, discovery done, you had a, you know, a, a joke of a four way meeting, you know, I can see why judges are frustrated, because essentially, you're wasting their time too. And I don't think you ever want to be the attorney that is doing that, you know. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, I have a lot to say on pretrial memos and uh, pretrial hearings uh, from myself and from my colleagues that I've uh, spoken to about it. 
I think what Pete says bears repeating about reading the pretrial notice and order that you get. There used to be in the old days, just one. It was the same in all 14 counties. Now judges have individualized them where many say that you have to file your pretrial memo and financial statements X days before, or you need to exchange them with opposing counsel and or X days before. Many now have page limits as hopefully they should. And, um, many require proposed judgments um, and rationales to be filed with the pretrial memo when you come into court that day or submit it a week before. There are 48 sitting judges at all times. Some read it on the bench that morning if they have them available. Some judges want them a week before so that they have time to review them, mull them over and have the most meaningful um, pretrial hearing that they can have that's done individually. Some judges, just because of scheduling, and judges get to set this up, or they did when I was on the bench, I probably don't know what they're doing now, but um, how many they're going to do per day. Some judges dedicate an entire day to pretrial hearings, and you would have, in Worcester, when I was on the bench, we had 20, I had a dedicated day, every Tuesday or whatever was my pretrial hearing day, and there would be 20 cases. Divide 20 by the number of minutes. It's not very long, as Pete said. If you get 30 minutes, that would be a wonderful, wonderful, meaningful, extensive pretrial hearing. Um, some judges do three or four before they start their trial day. Some judges do three or four before they start their contempts or their motion day. So it's very important to know that because you will also know, A, get there really, really early to make sure you're first in line, especially if a judge is, I got to start my trial, I got to start my trial, I got to start my motion day, as opposed to a dedicated pre-trial hearing day. But that is left up to county by county and in some counties, judge to judge as to how they schedule them. But you do need to know that. Do not schedule yourself anything else for that day. Do not have your client schedule anything else for that day. Have them have if there's children that need to be picked up, that you're going to be there from 8.30 to 4.30. We all know pretrials and judges have stayed till 6.30 and 7 o'clock to get an agreement. So I got to go pick up the kids now, or I have a depot judge that's starting at 2 o'clock. I can only be here this morning. That is not the way to start the pretrial hearing, and please be prepared to be there the whole day. The best would be that you get out by 11 with the separation agreement, the parties are divorced, and you have a half a day off. Um, I have always, well, I think it's, I want to go backwards. I think what you put in your pretrial and what you do not put in your pretrial are equally as important. I commend Pete for his, for his materials that he's presented today. I truly do. There's nothing worse than reading a 30 page pretrial memo, getting to the end and then figuring, then for the first time, finding out what the contested issues. Better to know what the contested issues are from, from the husband's perspective, if he's representing the husband or spouse one. And then when you're reading the materials to back that up or seeing the discovery that's been done or the exhibits or the witnesses to prove it, you know what evidence that that, that party is going to be able to present. Sometimes I would get to the very, very end of a pretrial memo and still not know what they were, what the disputes are, the real disputes, the ones that I can't help with. I can help with a vacation schedule. I can help with the definition of joint legal custody, but 
to know that there is not a restraining order till I get to the very, very end is not very helpful. So I think putting it right in the beginning and then backing it up, here's my opinion, almost like an expert opinion, right? Here's my opinion and here's what I did to get to that opinion and here's what I want. Is, that was very, very helpful, Pete, in your, in your uh, materials that you just shared. I watch, which you never have the benefit of seeing. When you sit on the bench, the judge watches, right? The two attorneys and the two parties. And the parties are trying to read for the very first time the opposing side's pretrial memo. And they are reading for the very first time 10 pages of horrible, horrible conduct about alcohol, about drugs, about affairs, about abuse, about domestic violence, whatever. There is no way you are going to settle a case when for the very first time, someone is standing up there reading 10 pages of horrible comments, true or not true, about them. Remember, pretrial memos are public documents. People, anyone can come in and can read a pretrial memo. If you are going to put in to the pretrial that the other side is lazy, never works, is drunk at work every day, da 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 da, their next employer may be reading the pretrial memo and saying, why would I hire this person? Be very careful. I'm not saying be dishonest. Of course, you've got to put in your client's best advocacy, but you can put in conduct issues will be discussed at trial. Economic misconduct is one of them. That's really the most important conduct, except domestic violence, like Pete said, or an addiction or something that would harm the children. Those are things that the court would have to know, but probably would already know from having some motion sessions or reading your proposed judgments. So what you keep out is, is more helpful actually than what you put in as far as settling. Judges read a minimum of 20 pretrial memos a week, a minimum. You can read between the lines after you've done it for about one day as a judge. You know what people are purposefully excluding to try to settle and that's the purpose of a pretrial. That's why judges don't allow you to put contested motions on on a pretrial day, generally. Can't speak for all 48, but the general consensus is you're here to try to settle. If you're coming in with a motion for further temporary order asking for sole legal custody, supervised visits, da 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 da, -da you're not going to settle. So you're here to settle. That day is your settlement day. It's not your contempt day. It's not a further motion hearing day. So try to keep it as settlement oriented as you can be. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to come back and to seek by way of a contempt or a motion for further temporary orders, something between the pretrial hearing and the judge and the, and the trial. Um, I think that what you bring in exchange, I think Pete's points are very, very well taken. Make sure that when the other side gives you a financial statement, often they give the signed original to the court, right? You would give the signed original and then you just hand one to the other side, but it's not signed. Make sure that all copies are signed when they're exchanged because then it's not going to have any weight later when you try to present it for something in a hearing, if there was a trial or in a modification or in a contempt. Just a little pointer is nobody ever seems to sign the, <laughs> the copies and when they exchange them and I think that that's so important. With the child support guidelines that Pete suggests that you have you need to file on his checklist, very important and I think you need to do alternatives. I think the child support guidelines 
if you're going to be putting in, if you're trying to get child support based with overtime and bonuses in, but you do it that way, you do one on base, you do it at 50-50 parenting, you do it at two-thirds, one-third parenting, come in with as many. There's nothing harder than standing there as everybody's on their phones trying to, right, trying to figure out different when the judge says, well, you know, if if the father gets one more night or the mother gets one more overnight, how is that going to skew child support? So just have them in your folder. It will be so helpful. Whatever you do before certainly can help. What do you want? That's what the five judges that I was speaking with over the weekend said. What do you want? And that's what Pete says in the very, very first opening after the heading, he should put, you should put in. What is your theory of the case? You have to have a theory of the case. And you should put your theory of the case in under contested issues of law or of or of facts, right? What is your theory? How are you going to prove it? What evidence do you have to prove it? Somebody says they brought in a certain amount of money to the to the marriage, or that their parents gave something towards a down payment, or that the grandparents have paid for. You have to have evidence of that, not just that one side says it and hopes that the other side's going to agree that yes, the parents said that you never, the grandparents said you never had to repay that. That's not going to happen. So have your evidence. The judge wants to know at the pretrial, okay, I hear you, Pete, you want that, but what evidence do you have that you are going to be able to prove that that's what you need to do? Not only your witness list, but I would put on the witness list, what is the relationship to the parties? You know, kindergarten teacher, pediatrician, not just the name, but actually what they're for. Um, when you put your, how many days of, or time that you need for trial, is that for both sides or for one side? Many judges will hold you to the number, the amount of time you put that you need for trial. Some judges say, you're each getting one day, put on your most important and best witnesses. So be prepared for that. Of course, and you should never shortchange your clients by minimizing the number of days or the time you need for trial. But remember, if you say you need four days for a trial, the judge can do four one-day trials, so you're gonna get bumped out farther. So try to make it as concise as you possibly can. You don't need every single witness. You don't need the sisters and the brothers of the parents or the aunts and the uncles to each be on the witness list. That's gonna be repetitive and not helpful. I think all discovery absolutely has to be done. How can you ask somebody to waive something if they don't know what they're waiving? How can you ask somebody to waive their right in the other side's pension or IRA if they have no idea what it is? How can you ask someone about a parenting schedule if you don't have the guardian ad litem report? You have to have the guardian ad litem report. You have to have run it with your clients. It has to be before the judge so that he or she has had time to read it. You have to have your appraisals done. You don't have to have an appraisal done if the house is going to be sold, because if the house is going to be sold, don't waste the money having an appraisal done, as far as I'm concerned, because whatever it sells for, great. That's wonderful. They'll both get their equitable division of that asset. But just, you're never going to get two people, or the court is not going to believe that Zillow <laughs> is the value that we should be using when we're trying at the pre-trial to do some horse trading and trying to divide assets. I think the Alec, the chalk that Pete mentioned was very, very helpful to bring. Everybody loves chalks, even if it's blank. Do a blank chalk so the other side can, you know, I mean, don't worry that you're giving away too much. 
better that you bring it and give it to the judge than not. Everybody says, well, I don't want to give that because that's giving it away. Why? It's only going to help if you come in with your proposed judgment. You come in with your chalks. You come in with all the different variations on the child support guidelines that the court might want. You're never as far apart as you think you are. That's why judges like proposed judgments is, you know, I remember before alimony reform, when my client wants alimony, how much? Whatever you say, judge. Whatever I say, it's not up to me to decide what somebody, you know, that you're selling your client short by not taking the time to come up with a proposed judgment. You're going to have to do it, hopefully, for your trial preparation, and you're going to have to do it at the conclusion of trial, so why not start and do it as completely as you can um, before you start the pretrial, with the pretrial memo. Judges can call cases to trial that day. I guess you have to be prepared. Judges say they would love to be able to say, and it's only if a case settles, another case settled, that you might have some time but judges would like to be able to do that if you're ready to try, it's probably a little unrealistic. Um, I think that when the part, you have to prepare your clients that it could be three, four, five, six, seven months till they get a trial. Now it could even be longer, I have no idea, but I think they really believe when they go into the pretrial that they're going to have a trial and a decision and that they're gonna get a decision on the day that the evidence finishes at a trial. That's not true. Please instruct them to be realistic or as best you can. Nobody knows exactly when the judge's trial calendar is out to, but the clerk sort of knows when the judge's trial calendar is out to, and the time is money. And to get going, to get on with their lives and not be paying attorneys is a win-win. Not that attorneys should not be paid. Absolutely, they should be paid. They should be paid more if they do domestic relations and family law, but, but time Emotional time and moving forward is so, so important. Um, the judges that I conferred with said, please exchange all documents first before the hearing. There's nothing worse when you're seeing the appraisal, the real estate appraisal handed to you at, that, at the pretrial hearing and you're trying to read it or you see the financial statement. It used to always actually make me chuckle. Lawyers get there at 8.30. They don't get called till 2.30 or 3. Rightfully, they're frustrated and antsy. I don't blame them. For the very first time at 2.30 or 3 when they're called is when they hand each other their pretrial memos and their financial statements. You've wasted all day because you cannot read theirs as well as answer the court's questions that the court will have for you. Every judge has a different style. Some judges listen and then at the end, some judges say, I'm not comfortable. Unfortunately, some judges say they're not comfortable giving suggestions or ideas. So that's very few and far between. I've really not heard that very much at all. Those heard that in the old, old days. Now I think judges are very involved and instructive, but this might be the very first time that the judge has seen your case. It certainly will be the very first time that your client has had any input from the judge. In a motion session, the judge may be asking a couple questions, but really that's just the attorneys doing advocacy. The first time that the court is really involved in helping you or saying, Pete, where's that coming from? Jen, no, that, you know, that's never gonna happen. It's a 30 year marriage, it's, you know, whatever, whatever the judge is going to say. Um, 
So the, the clients are really going to be looking at the judge, really, really studying, listening to all the pre-trials earlier that day to see, to see the judge's style. I think a bonus that we have now is that you can order pre-trial hearings. Now you can order the, the video of it. And I'm sorry, the audio of it, excuse me, because all attorneys and clients come out only hearing certain things because everybody's talking fast and it's very, very 15 to 20 minutes at most for a pretrial hearing, maybe 30 minutes. But I think it's important to then go back and listen to the pretrial again and what the judge suggested at the pretrial hearing. I know that's not part of this topic, but I think that that's really important as you prepare for trial or continue to negotiate between the pretrial hearing and the trial date. Remember, if you settle at pretrial, you can get divorced that day. Keep telling your clients that. If you settle at the four-way meeting, you can get divorced at the pretrial day. So please tell them that as well. So I think that's most of my comments. Thank you. Great. Wonderful, thanks Judge Ricky. Um, so we, have, we do have a few questions. I'm trying to figure this out here, but I see a few questions here. Um, one question, are parenting classes still required and must, they be completed before the pretrial conference. Um, to my knowledge, they have not changed the, pre, um, the requirement to take the parenting class. I believe there is an online option during this pandemic. I did read something about that, mm -hmm. but it's important mm -hmm. that one thing that I remember so many clients, you know, would come to me and say, oh, I already took the, the parenting class. And there are certain parenting classes that are approved by the state. You can't just go online and search for a random parenting class and take it. So it's important that it is this, the one that is sanctioned by the court that fulfills the requirement. Um, I like to have my clients complete them before the pretrial. I think it's helpful um, having them have that knowledge base at the very start of the case. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, sometimes judges, I, don't, I haven't seen many judges make a huge deal if it's not done by the pretrial. Um, some do, but I think what I always tell my client is if you want to settle your case on the pretrial, it needs to be done as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think the sooner the better with that as well. You don't want that to be dangling and a reason why you can't settle the case because one or both parties haven't done the parenting class. If you've and not been able, oh, I'm sorry. If you've not been able, if your client hasn't been able to, to participate in the parent ed, I would bring that day a motion to, not to waive the parenting class, but for them to have time between, even if you're going to settle that day at the pretrial hearing, or if you settle at the four-way and you're using the pretrial time to have your uh, separation agreement approved, I would do a motion for them to be able within the NICI period. I think that if you don't have it done by the 90 days or 120 days after, that that could hold up the judgment and you certainly don't want that to happen. And you certainly don't want that to happen because of your client not participating. But I would have a motion ready. I don't think it should hold up having a meaningful pretrial, but I think you should alert the court that my client tried to get into one, hasn't been able to get in, it'll be done in 29 days or whatever it is. I think that's a simple fix for that, for not having it completed. Perfect. Um, another question, if a client is pushing to include infidelity issues that led to emotional abuse, depression, and depression because they discovered there was another family, is that worth mentioning, I assume, in the pretrial memo and or orally during the pretrial hearing? Um, Pete, Judge Ricky, any thoughts on that? <clears throat> it has, I'm sorry about that. It has to tie into, if you're going to bring up conduct, I think it's got to tie into, um, you know, like a, an actionable thing, like like the custody of children. Why is it harm their, their welfare? 
Um, if it's going to tie into, you know, um, uh, into, into assets, you got to say, or, 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 you know, income or whatever it might be support. You gotta, you gotta bring that on home, I think for the judge. Um, you know, it, it, and I think you have to, if it's, if it's extenuating and aggravating circumstances, make it known why it's, it's such that, you know, um, you know, there's, there was a case that came after, excuse me, about removal. And, uh, one of the reasons why, why, you know, why I think the court had decided that that removal could not occur in that case was because of the effect that it would have upon the parent. Now, of course, removal would have a, ma a massive effect upon a parent, but in this case, with this specific parent, what they went through, it would have been um, completely devastating and left that parent, you know, uh, uh, completely without, with, with, you know, very, very, you know, in a, in a terrible position. So it's all about bringing home and tailing it to your case, you know, and that's, that's what I would look at. I would look at to see if, if there is a way that this case, you know, if it's specific and it absolutely needs to be brought up, that the judge needs to know about it, then I'd make a judgment call, you know? Mm -hmm. If it affects health, and health, of course, is one of the reasons that perhaps the client is unable to earn at their maximum capacity or work or go back to work or they've lost their job or they have extraordinary expenses for their treatment, then yes. I think it absolutely has to be brought up. I don't think you need to go into the details about it, but just because of the con the extramarital conduct, it has caused emotional da 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 da. But that you know, I mean, sadly, unfortunately, then you're going to probably have to have an expert come on as to the health factor as one of the witnesses. So it's not so simple. It's not just saying that this that this particular conduct by my spouse has caused me. I think you then need, again, what evidence do you have to prove that particular factor? But certainly you can, it should be brought up to the court if it's an economic issue of earning ability or a dissipation of assets because somebody has spent money or a health, a health reason. All right, let's see. Um, are pretrial conferences still being held via video conference or are they being rescheduled to after June 1st? Um, I can say personally, a lot of mine are being bumped out, um, but I believe, I, I think video conferencing is, is going to be on the table, right, Judge? Is that your understanding? My, yes, from what I read, because I get about eight of them a day, like all of you get, <laughs> trying to, um, to read all the orders, I think that they're, the court, each court is going to now, each division, I'm sorry, each county is now going to decide how to address non-emergency matters. Now they've only been addressing emergencies. I know some courts have been doing some 1As by video or whatever. And once they secure a Zoom conferencing, I think that the judges are anxious to start doing pre-trial by, by Zoom. Of course, that's going to be a little more difficult as to what documents the court has and how they get the how they get the documents and the exhibits or whatever that, that Pete is going to teach you today, what that you need to file, but and getting the financial statements to the court, et cetera. But I think they want to be able to do those as non-emergency. I don't know that they've been doing them yet. I can't speak to, of course, every single judge, but I think that that's something that if they're not going to do them between now and June 1, that's certainly going to be something they're going to get right back on before they even start scheduling any trials. Okay. <clears throat> um, let's see, we have a 
time crunch here, but let's see if we can get to one more. Um, does Massachusetts still have a divorce NICI period? And if so, if an agreement is made at the pretrial conference, is there still a 90 days before the divorce is final? So essentially what we, what we were talking about is if you come to an agreement at the pretrial, if it's assuming you, you know, you've done your homework ahead of time, you came in with um, a separation agreement ready to go, maybe you have a couple you know, blanks, we just had to be filled in, you know, very simple, you know, buyout figure or whatever. Um, you can certainly have your uncontested divorce hearing on the pretrial date, in which case, um, I guess this is this is assuming since it's a pretrial date, we're talking about a 1B uh, divorce case. So the not, you know, that would be your, um, yes, it would be 90 days after that formerly pretrial date, now it's the uncontested hearing date that your divorce will be final. So yes, there is still a um, nice I period in Massachusetts. And if you present your separation agreement on the pretrial date, your, the divorce will be final 90 days after that pretrial conference date. And the court cannot waive nice I periods. You're often asked to waive that 90 days. It's statutory, it can't be waived by the judges. All right, well, I think that is our time limit. So um, thank you everyone for attending and Judge Ricky, thank you for joining. Jumping right in, <laughs> butting in, yes. Um, and I believe um, BBA is recording this. I can see the little recording um, light. So I think it's going to be available um, by, by the BBA afterwards and Pete's materials, I believe, were sent out to all of you and, and can be um, accessed through the BBA as well afterwards. Thank you all to right. the participants who came and spent their time with us because they want to do it right. We appreciate it. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Thank you. Bye, everyone. Stay Bye. safe. Take care. Bye.